When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. With regard to the political relations of Europe and those unhappy disturbances which agitate its different states, the system of the United States to keep themselves altogether disconnected with them was wise and just, and they might rely on him that he would do nothing to withdraw them from it. The continent of Europe is now clearly pacified, or at least that the only obstacle to a general pacification was the obstinate adherence of England to a system of maritime pretensions which was neither liberal nor just. The only object now to be obtained by the war was to bring England to reasonable terms on this subject. She could no longer flatter herself with the hope of any support for her system upon the continent. John Quincy Adams, reporting on the remarks of Tsar Alexander Pyrvi Pavlovich of Russia in a recent meeting, the 25th of October in the year of our Lord, 1809. Europe had been engulfed in turmoil, upheaval, and battles for the better part of two decades by the point John Quincy Adams arrived in St. Petersburg to take up his new diplomatic post, and he would find a continent that was quite war-weary. Whatever the ultimate conclusion of the conflict between the French Empire and the United Kingdom, it was certain to have ramifications for the United States and the many European colonies in the Western Hemisphere. But it was anyone's guess as to how things would eventually shake out or when. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Roberto Toro for reading the opening quotes for this episode. Roberto is the host of not one, but two podcasts. He started his first podcast, The History of Sarcavello, Georgia, when he realized that there was no English-language podcast covering the rich history of this country nestled in the Caucasus Mountains. In his podcast, Roberto guides listeners through not just the history of Georgia, but also the myths and folklore of the land, as well as topics related to the nation's culture and cuisine. Like many podcasters, once he was bitten by the bug, he just couldn't stop. So he recently launched a new podcast called Sar Power. With his co-host Brendan, Roberto will rank all the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin in this latest century into the Rexypod family. I'll have links to both of Roberto's podcasts in the sources section for this episode, or just search for the history of Sarkavello, that's S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O, Georgia, as well as Tsar, that's T-S-A-R, Power, on Google or in your podcast app of choice. Believe me, You'll learn so much from both. As you can tell, we are finally through with our Dolly Madison detour and back to the main narrative. In case you need a refresher on where we left off with episode 4.8, here's a quick recap. Louisiana Territorial Governor Meriwether Lewis met his untimely death by suicide, and Madison was left trying to find a replacement for him. 
Meanwhile, the president's private secretary, Isaac Coles, assaulted a U.S. congressman at the U.S. Capitol while delivering Madison's first annual message. And Representative John G. Jackson, Democratic-Republican from Virginia and First Lady Dolly Madison's brother-in-law, got into a duel with another congressman at around the same time. The end of 1809 leading into 1810 was a time of tragedy and scandal for the administration. However, before we can go further into the administration's affairs, we do have to get up to speed on what's happening in Europe. When last we discussed French Emperor Napoleon's campaigns back in episode 4.5, he was coming off of the hard-fought victory at the Battle of Valgrim on July 6, 1809. Austrian Archduke Karl, the head of the defeated Austrian forces, asked for an armistice on the 11th, which was granted, and Napoleon returned to Schönbrunn Palace and occupied Vienna to draft his demands for a peace treaty. Peace negotiations began on August 18th, but they quickly bogged down into stalemate. The French emperor grew increasingly infuriated that the defeated Austrians were being so intransigent and, at one point, sent a message, quote, that if the emperor wants to advocate in favor of the Grand Duke of Würzburg, I shall leave your country as it is, with its present independence, and shall then form an alliance with you that will allow you to govern yourself, and threaten to take more Habsburg territory if he was refused. Austrian Archduke Franz had no intention of advocating, as Napoleon was well aware, but the French emperor kept up the pressure through September, though he held back from walking away from the negotiations and resuming military operations. For Napoleon realized that his position was not as strong as it might appear at first glance. Indeed, the emperor, as well as French foreign minister Champagny, were concerned that their supposed allies, the Russians, may not be reliable. As noted by Champagny, in the recent campaign, quote, the Russians did not fire a shot against the Austrians. In fact, the only blood they spilt was Polish, with the Polish being more reliable allies of Napoleon. Still, the emperor began to wonder if he would have to betray his Polish allies in order to retain the Russian Empire on his side. Little did he know that Prussian King Friedrich Wilhelm III had been negotiating secretly with the Russians to build a new coalition against France. Still, the French pressure on the Austrians finally won out, and the Treaty of Schönbrunn, also known as the Treaty of Vienna, was signed and exchanged on the evening of October 13th and 14th, 1809, thus ending the War of the Fifth Coalition, which had only lasted just over six months. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Though Archduke Franz remained on the Austrian throne after the negotiations, as noted by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoen, quote, Austria paid a staggering price for its independence including the loss of some 42,000 square miles of territory and 3,500,000 Austrian subjects. Austria was also required to reduce the size of its standing army and pay a war indemnity to Napoleon Bonaparte of 85 million francs. 
With a peace like this, it can be imagined that the Austrians would seek to attack the French once more as soon as they were able and the opportunity presented itself, unless something drastic happened. Shortly after the French emperor returned to his palace, Fontainebleau, something drastic happened. Napoleon Bonaparte and Josephine de Beauharnais had been married for over 13 years at this point, but though she had children by her first husband, her union with the man who became the French emperor continued on childless. If Napoleon intended on being the first in a dynasty of French emperors, this situation was unacceptable. Thus, in late 1809, though he avoided the subject for a bit, he finally drew up the courage to tell Josephine that, quote, I need a womb, and that he planned to divorce her so that he could remarry. Again from Scholm, quote, It had been as heartrending a decision regarding another human as Napoleon had ever had to make, and it left him shaken. Josephine was the only woman he had ever been truly devoted to, after his own fashion, of course. He had cheated on her repeatedly, but he was still, from all indications, in love with her. Still, he made the arrangements, and, as a ruler with absolute authority, he was able to make the proceedings go rather quickly, so that, on December 15, 1809, Napoleon and Josephine signed the documents of annulment at Fontainebleau, and the next morning, Josephine and her daughter Hortense departed the palace for their home, La Maison. In what seems a rather cold-hearted move, Napoleon had Josephine's son, his stepson, Prince Eugene, deliver the official notification of the dissolution of the marriage to the French Senate. Thus, as 1810 began, Emperor Napoleon was a single man once more, but he had already set his sights on wife number two. And in yet another cold-hearted move, he turned to Eugene to make the initial move to secure this new lady's hand in marriage. Who did Napoleon have in mind as his new wife? Why, none other than the daughter of Austrian Archduke Franz, Maria Ludovica Leopoldina Francisca Therese Josepha Lucia, or, for convenience's sake, Marie Louise. Two other potential brides were discussed, but ultimately, the betrothal to the 18-year-old Austrian Archduchess was seen as the most advantageous way to keep Austria from joining a future coalition against him, as well as take advantage of the, quote, wide network of aristocratic relations that the marriage would bring. For someone looking to establish a dynasty, a better match could not be made, especially if Marie-Louise gave Napoleon a male heir. The only problem, however, is that one of the other potential brides was the sister of Russian Tsar Alexander, and Napoleon had already made a tentative proposal of marriage to her and left the Tsar waiting for a final answer for two and a half months before informing him of the decision to wed Marie-Louise. The Tsar would not forget this slight. By early March, the official papers were being signed to make the marriage happen, which included Marie-Louise, quote, renouncing all claims to the succession of the Austrian imperial throne and swearing her new allegiance to France. The bride's dowry of gold ducats valued at nearly 500,000 francs was given to Napoleon, and despite the fact that the Austrian public protested the impending nuptials in Vienna, Marie-Louise traveled, quote, under strong military escort to Strasbourg, then to St. Cloud, where, on April 1st, 
the French emperor and the Austrian archduchess were wed. The next day, Napoleon brought his new empress to Paris, where, as described by Scholm, quote, throughout the capital, every bell and church belfry would ring out and cannon at the Invalides would thunder. Napoleon would show them all. He would prevail and continue to recast the whole of French and European life in his own image. Unfortunately for the emperor, reality was not matching up with his ambition. Though the War of the Fifth Coalition had been a short one, it had still taken its toll on the French military, and it had been fought while French forces were still bogged down in conflict on the Iberian Peninsula. The British partnered with the Portuguese government in exile and the insurgent Spanish Regency, continued to thwart Napoleon's efforts of securing a new puppet state for his brother Joseph. Meanwhile, the campaign against Austria in the East had given Napoleon reason to doubt the reliability of his Russian allies. Rather than support Napoleon, Tsar Alexander had focused on a campaign against Sweden to secure Finland for himself. Meanwhile, the campaign in the Iberian Peninsula strained the French national budget as well as public opinion and exacerbated already existing domestic issues, quote, including vast agricultural shortfalls and a declining economy. The French emperor had never shown much interest in domestic affairs, but one would think, once the marriage ceremony was done, he would rush off to the southwest. Not so, dear listener. Despite the need for Napoleon's turn his attention to military matters in the Peninsular War, as noted by Scholm, quote, the military and the Spanish situation received at most but cursory attention. Napoleon lost all interest in it. For the first time in his career, he refused to rejoin a major, deadly military campaign. Scholm explains this lack of enthusiasm at a new military campaign as follows, quote, if he was agitated, irritable, never satisfied with the smallest detail, despite the occasional smile and badly hummed tune, it was because this was a period of great crisis in his life. His second Danube campaign had deeply shaken him. Never before had he had to concentrate, tax every fiber of his ability and energy to cope with one close shave after another on the battlefield. And after making unheard of military preparations, with a superior field force. At 40, Napoleon found himself getting too old for active campaigning. Emotionally, he could not afford another Wagram campaign. He was, like everyone else now, patently war-weary. But was he also slipping, losing that Bonaparte touch, his special genius on the field of battle? Indeed, Schoen postulates that Though Napoleon refused to entertain suggestions of withdrawing French forces from the Iberian Peninsula, that, quote, in his heart of hearts, he probably realized he could not win, at least not for many years, in a land where half a dozen major battles might be fought in half a dozen distant places, seconded by Spaniards and Portuguese who were determined to fight to the last man and in the process carry out such barbarous atrocities as to frighten him. We'll have to reflect on whether the fearless Napoleon had finally lost his edge as we continue on in our narrative. For now, let's turn east and get caught up on the arrival of an American leader at his new diplomatic post. John Quincy Adams and his family arrived in St. Petersburg on October 23, 1809, quote, 
just before the ice closed in on the Bay of Kronstadt. The new U.S. minister to Russia was arriving without, quote, any special instructions. Instead, Secretary of State Robert Smith gave Adams copies of the instructions previously issued by Madison to William Short in 1808 upon Jefferson's ultimately failed nomination of Short to the post, and also those of 1806 to the Minister of France, General Armstrong. As longtime listeners of the podcast know, this was not the 42-year-old Adams' first rodeo in terms of European diplomacy. Adams determined from these patchwork instructions that his mission was one, quote, to create goodwill, attend carefully to the just rights and interests of the United States, and secure favorable treatment for American commerce. As noted by Adams' biographer Samuel Flagg Bemis, quote, thanks to Russia's necessities, the new American minister straightaway found himself a man of some importance. In their first meeting, Adams established a strong relationship with Saul Alexander, and as noted by Adams' biographer Paul Nagel, quote, Adams soon found himself a favorite walking companion of the emperor who had the startling custom of ambling along the quay without escort, courteously nodding to citizens he passed. The two always talked as they strolled, frequently discussing the latest international news as the emperor sought to be well-informed on world affairs. He also peppered John with questions about the United States. Adams had arrived just at a time when Russia's problems with France and England made friendship and commerce with the young republic desirable. In addition, there were personal inquiries, evidently Alexander's way of showing kindness while he tried to learn more about this American and his nation. The emperor's curiosity ranged from Adams' exercise habits to his headgear and the fact that the American rarely wore gloves. As noted by Bemis, quote, Despite handicaps of low salary and expense account in the most costly and extravagant court of Europe, he, Adams, and his family remained persona grata at the court throughout their long tour of duty there. We'll see the dividends that would come out of this early success, but for now, we must continue to go around the globe and spend some time with an American who has only gotten a couple of brief mentions in the narrative thus far, but is destined to play a larger role in presidential history as we go along. You are quite forgiven if you don't recall the brief mentions of him in episodes 3.13, 3.39, and 4.083. But now, it's time to get formally introduced to John Jacob Astor. Students of American history may recognize the name. Or if you're interested in the history of the Titanic, then you've probably heard the name of one of his descendants. As for this John Jacob Astor, he was born in 1763 in Waldorf, in what is now southwestern Germany, but at the time was part of the Palatinate. He was the sixth child of a butcher and his wife, and because of the nature of his father's work being seasonal and dependent on overall economic prosperity, which was not always the case, the family went through lean financial times as well as more prosperous ones. After the death of Astor's mother less than a year after his birth and his father's remarrying two years later, with whom he'd have six more children, The home was increasingly crowded, and it was clear that some of the older kids would have to make their own way in the world sooner rather than later. John Jacob would follow the path forged by some of his older brothers around the time he turned 17, first stopping in London to work with his brother George, who was a musical instrument maker. A few years later, after the Revolutionary War officially ended, John Jacob joined his brother Henry in crossing the Atlantic to New York City. 
Henry had followed in the family tradition by becoming a butcher, but his younger brother had other ambitions. After briefly working as a delivery boy for a baker, Astor soon made the acquaintance of a fur trader named Robert Bowne and went to work for him as a clerk. He also had a side business as the importer of musical instruments crafted by his brother George in London. And, as noted by Astor's biographer Alexander Emmerich, quote, only months after his arrival in America, he, i.e. Astor, had established himself, admittedly still as a small player, but nevertheless in the transatlantic trade. Initially, it would be this trade in luxury items from Europe that would help build up his business, with this trade being given a shot in the arm through his marriage in 1785 to a well-to-do and well-connected young woman named Sarah Todd. In the late 1780s, however, Astor started to reflect more on what he had learned of the fur trade during his time as Bounds clerk. At that point, as noted by Emmerich, quote, the British trading companies in Canada dominated the fur trade, but Astor felt that there was money to be made if he could break into the North American fur market. As described by historian Eric J. Dolan, quote, he, i.e. Astor, went on long, arduous, and at times dangerous trips to the backwoods of upstate New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, lugging a 60-pound backpack and trading with trappers, Indians, and other traders for furs, then bringing them back to New York for sale or export. With new profits coming in from the fur trade, Astor was then able to turn to the third pillar of his fortune as he used that money to invest in real estate in Manhattan. As described by Emmerich, quote, real estate in New York was the most important of all of Astor's enterprises. In the end, the profits made here were the reason why Astor's fortune surpassed those of all his contemporaries. As the 1790s went on, Astor became more of an established figure in the fur trade. No longer making trips into the wilderness on his own, he did finance agents to buy furs directly from native peoples and continued to expand his footprint in the marketplace by traveling to Montreal for part of the year every year to purchase furs that made their way to that port, which he could then ship back to New York via London. His time in Montreal allowed him to, quote, learn about the general conditions of the international fur trade. He also began exploring opportunities for trade with China, and starting in 1800, quote, Astor sent one, sometimes two vessels per year to Canton. His cargoes consisted of furs, ginseng, spices, cochineal to produce red colorant, quicksilver, cotton, iron, and blackwood. His ships brought back black and green tea, nankings, silk, sugar, cassia, and several minor articles. Indeed, as the Napoleonic Wars continued and got more intense each year, increasing the risk of the transatlantic trade, Astor's Pacific trade proved to be, at times, a safer trade, despite the greater distance involved. Slowly but surely, Astor started developing an idea that could potentially bring together the disparate pieces of his business empire. As described by Dolan, quote, the plan was bold in conception and sweeping in scope. He, i.e. Astor, would build a series of trading posts along the Missouri, shadowing the trail of Lewis and Clark, up to and over the Continental Divide, then along the Columbia to the ocean. Furs gathered to the east of the Divide, from throughout the Missouri drainage basin, would be transported to St. Louis or New Orleans, and ultimately to markets in New York and Europe, 
while furs collected on the western side would be brought to the shores of the Pacific and then shipped to China, where they would be traded for silk, spices, tea, and porcelain, which would be sent to New York for domestic and overseas sale. As the anchor of his trading empire in the West, Astor envisioned establishing a post at the mouth of the Columbia River, which would be the portal for the distribution of furs flowing in from the countryside. The scheme was quite similar to what Meriwether Lewis had proposed after his return from the Corps Discovery Expedition, and I haven't been able to track down whether Lewis or Astor had the idea first or what influence one may have had on the other. Both agreed, though, that such a plan would need at least the tactic approval of the U.S. government, if not actual aid, be it financial or military. Thus, Astor began to lobby federal officials. First, through DeWitt Clinton, he reached out to Vice President George Clinton. Then on February 27, 1808, Astor wrote directly to President Thomas Jefferson. They arranged a meeting in April where, according to Astor's later notes from 1813, he met with Jefferson, Secretary of State Madison, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, and Secretary of War Henry Dearborn. Astor is our only source for this meeting, but he asserts that he, quote, presented a full and detailed plan how to establish the fur trade in the West and how to take over the trade with the Native Americans. Jefferson was all in for the scheme and wrote that, quote, all beyond the Mississippi is ours exclusively, and it will be in our power to give our own traders great advantages over their foreign competitors. After getting approval from the New York state government, Astor incorporated the American Fur Company and seemed to be well on his way to making his ambition a reality. Had Jefferson had longer to go in his presidential term, it is quite possible that Astor's plan might have had a better shot. However, less than a year after their meeting, Jefferson was on his way back to Monticello, and James Madison was inaugurated as president. Madison, unlike Jefferson, was not quite as impressed with Astor's plans. Further, as he noted in a letter to Gallatin in September 1810, President Madison felt the plans to be unconstitutional as it would be giving government sanction to a monopoly. This backsliding in terms of getting government support would not deter Astor, however. The United States was not the only government with a vested interest in breaking the British monopoly in the North American fur trading industry. As noted in episode 4.6, the Russian chargé d'affaires, Andrei Dedashkov, had arrived in the United States in July 1809, and the Russians did have a colony of their own in the Pacific Northwest. Thus, Astor reached out to Dashkov, who, in addition to being the Russian Empire's highest-ranking diplomatic representative in the U.S., was also a, quote, correspondent of the Russian-American company, with the authority, quote, to regulate the growing American contacts with the company's settlements and neighboring Indians. With Dashkov on board with the plan, John Jacob Astor made arrangements to equip a ship to carry an agent to the Pacific Northwest to finalize a joint venture agreement with representatives of the Russian-American company. On November 15, 1809, Astor's agent, Captain John Ebbets, and Astor's ship, the Enterprise, set sail from New York Harbor. After a journey of 204 days, they arrived at a native village in the Pacific Northwest and made contact with them before continuing on in late June to the Russian settlement of New Archangel, modern-day Sitka. 
Despite Astor's hopes, these negotiations would ultimately come to naught, and Ebbets and the Enterprise would leave New Archangel without an accord. Again, though, Astor had not acquired the wealth he had by putting all of his eggs in one basket. Even before Ebbets had arrived at New Archangel, he had already secured a deal that could very well be the path to success for this ambitious venture. With few options left to him, Astor finally got to the place where he reached the conclusion of, as the old saying goes, if you can't beat him, join him. In his 1809 trip to Montreal, he had approached members of the Northwest Company about forming an alliance with a percentage of the proceeds of Astor's scheme going to the British Company. In early 1810, Astor invited three representatives of the company to New York City, and on March 10, 1810, they signed a preliminary agreement to establish the Pacific Fur Company, a British-American joint business venture. By June 23rd, this new company was a reality, and Astor could proceed with his plans to establish a new fur trading post on the Columbia River in the Pacific Northwest. We'll have to come back to the founding of this new settlement another time, for our time together is unfortunately drawing to a close. Before we part ways, though, I wanted to send out a few thank yous. First, thanks again to Roberto for providing the intro quote for this episode. And please be sure to check out the history of Sarcavello, Georgia, and Czar Power wherever you get your podcast. I'll have links to both on the sources section for this episode. A big thank you to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. I couldn't do what I do without his talents. If you're a podcaster like me who would like to devote more time to research and less to editing, you should consider enlisting Christian services to support your work. Check out his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com to learn more. Special thanks to the itinerant man for allowing us the use of their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. And be sure to check them out on your music player of choice. I'll also have their website on the sources section for this episode on my website, which is Presidency's Podcast, that's all one word, dot com. There, you can find the sources that I use for this episode, past episodes if you like to get caught up on those, resources to help further your studies of presidential history, and information on how you, yes, you, dear listener, can support this podcast. The quickest and easiest way to show your support is by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Spotify, or Good Pods, or there is a way to leave a rating and review on the website. Please take a moment to let folks know why they should give presidencies a try. It really does help in getting the word out there and only takes a minute of your time. If you're so inclined to want to support the podcast financially, I do have a Patreon set up. That is linked on the website as well, or you can go to patreon.com slash presidencies and sign up. A special thanks to our patrons, Matthew C., Michelle, Jeremy, Ike, Joshua, Matthew N., Eric, Howard, Michael, and Scott for helping to ensure that I have the equipment, tools, and research materials needed for the podcast. For all who have supported this work and this humble podcaster in so many ways over the years, I sincerely thank you. This has been an amazing journey thus far, and I can't wait to see what's next together. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care 
dear friends. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.